0: Hey, Carrie. Hey, Carly. Welcome to another episode of 77 Music Club. We are your hosts, Carly
1: Jordan. And Carrie Corgan. And we've been gone for a hot minute, but we are back. Welcome to our first episode of 2019. We were just, you know, this is our side hustle once again, and we were dealing with our own lives and professional bullshit, but now we're back to grace your ears with our...
0: Grace is relative but we hope you enjoy the episode. Yes. (laughs) Today we are going to be talking about Joe Bryath and his self-titled 1973 album Joe Bryath.
1: And Joe Bryath is an artist that you either really know or you are like who is this person and I fell into the latter category. Um, I discovered him through Carly and I think Carly had... A really great way of explaining like how she found out about him and how she found out about his story because it is fascinating.
0: Well I knew that you would really latch on to the story because it is full of pathos and tragedy and it is heartbreaking and it's also inspiring at the same time um, and this was truly a really really talented human um, and I just knew that you know, if I if I told you about this, that you would be on board and want to want to tell the story on the show too. Um, but I, embarrassingly enough, only found out about Joe Bryeth in the summer of last year um, because yeah, a song of his kept coming on my Discover Weekly on Spotify. Uh, which, for those of you who do not use Spotify, Discover Weekly is a playlist that um, the Spotify algorithm makes for you based on what you listen to frequently, I'm just art by artist by genre. And it's usually very, very good and really, really on point. And I think that's a really good thing about um, discovering music and listening to music um, that comes out of a platform that is sometimes
1: controversial. You and I have both found a lot of yeah a lot of artists or rediscovered artists and yeah a new new music new and, and old
0: music alike that that is new to us. That is a lot of times how we discover. How we discover it. And so it's aptly named Discover Weekly. Um, But it is, it's a great way to expand your musical vocabulary um, because you can find new artists or old artists and just go down the rabbit hole with their music and their story. Um, And Joe Bryath is one such example for me, such an example for me because uh, his song, I'm a Man, kept coming on my Discover Weekly, uh, you know, fairly frequently. And so I just, and I realized that I loved it and kept listening to it. So I finally took the plunge and read about the artist and listened to the whole album and I just completely fell in love with it. And it just seemed so high quality and and the caliber of it was just, you know, it matched all of the other glam rock artists that I know and love from his same time period. So I just wondered why not more people, not a lot more people knew about him or, you know, why nobody else I knew was talking about him or, you know, why I'd never come across the name before. I think um, that's
1: like my favorite thing about those spirals in Discover Weekly yeah. is that you're either like... You're listening to this music that you just discovered, and I feel, I feel like, like it always falls into one of two categories. One is either like, oh my God, I'm so late to this party. How could I be so late to this party? I love this. Or you're like, oh my God, I'm at this party. I love it so much, but where is everyone. This should be a hop and party.
0: Yeah, totally. And when that happens, you want to get everybody else on board too and be like, come see the light with me. Like, come, come see that. Like, how are you not listening to this? Like you, you, like, please, please be on board with me. Um, so that's what I did with you. And luckily you loved this too. And luckily we have this podcast, this platform to this platform to bring, bring the, story the story to as many people as want to listen. Uh, so we hope you enjoy this story and this music. If you're finding out about Joe Briath through us, then that is just a pretty darn cool thing. Um, and that is part of the reason why we love doing this podcast. Um, and so- if
1: not, if you already know about Joe Briath, which some people that we've spoken to about this podcast episode knew about and we're like oh cool okay amazingly enough i've been
0: i've been very happy to talk to to talk to some people about it and and hear that they are familiar with the story
1: and so if you're in that category we hope that we hope you like that you like this podcast we
0: hope you like this succinct telling of the story of Jobriath along with our usual nerding and banter and weirdness so you've come to love so, without further ado, here is the story of Joe Bryath.
1: So, I'm an elegant man, I'm a man.
0: Clara.
1: So some background information.
0: So essentially Joe Bryath was the first openly gay rock star. He was a glam rocker right around the same time as Bowie and Bolin that early 70s period. Um, But unlike Bowie and Bolin who made androgyny and fainess part of their act and their allure, Joe Bryath's homosexuality was honest and uninhibited. He was born Bruce Wayne Campbell, raised in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. He was a piano prodigy and he began composing for piano when he was just a teenager. He also played Woof in the original Los Angeles company of Hair in the late 60s. Uh, and if you are a musical theater person like me, you know that, yes, his big song is Sodomy, which is hilariously appropriate. From there, he became the singer and guitarist in a folk rock band called Pigeon. Uh, that band didn't do super well and ended up being pretty much a showcase act for Joe Bryant and they soon disbanded.
1: And after this, at some point, he was tracked down by military police for draft dodging but he had a complete mental breakdown. So he was sent to a psychiatric hospital and he would stay there for six months. And during this time he started writing these songs that would eventually come to form this debut album.
0: Yeah. Um, so it is also very important to note that after the, after these songs were being composed right around this time, uh, Joe Briath met his soon to be manager, Jerry Brant. Um, and Jerry Brant was, uh, Carly Simon's manager at this time in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and he was a very powerful figure in the music industry. Um, Jerry Brant was given a demo tape of Joe Briath by an acquaintance of his. So he tracked Joe Briath down because he wanted to see what the deal was with this guy who was making this incredibly, um, intricate and sexy unique rock music um, and it's really important that we bring up Jerry Brandt because his part in this story um, is, is enormous um, and what happened to Joe Bryant would not have happened without Jerry Brandt um, so we're going to be mentioning him a lot throughout this as well. Um, he was the head of pop music at William Morris. He was also, fun fact, the owner of the famous Electric Circus Club on St. Mark's Place in New York, which was open from 1967 to 1971. And extra extra fun fact, the founder of one of our favorite venues to talk about, which you've heard us talk about the show before, on the show before, The Ritz.
1: The Ritz, which, good news if you're in the New York area You may have known that it rebranded as Webster Hall, and then it closed, and we just found out that the Ritz that is now Webster Hall, and now Webster Hall 2.0 is finally reopening sometime this year, so yay for historic
0: venues in New York. Yay for historic venues in New York. Yay for balcony dancing. That is my favorite thing about Webster Hall, is that big balcony where there aren't any seats. You can just... There's room to dance up there. And I love... Like, right by that VIP section where they have the couches, you can just dance all over the place. It's so great. I love it.
1: Anyway, so Joe yeah, Bryant, yeah. um Joe Bryath really wanted to be famous, and he wanted his music spread all over the world. He just really wanted to be known. And so he told Jerry Brandt that he wanted a partnership just like the one that Elvis and Colonel Parker had. So they signed a 50-50 partnership deal, and Jerry began managing Joe Bryath's career and paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to promote him before his album was even released, which is crazy. Like, we see that happen now, but, like... But you know back then the hype machine. But now what you can do when you
0: see that, like the other day I was walking on eighth avenue and there was a huge, huge billboard for Lizzo's new single juice, which is side note, awesome. Amazing. If you listen to it once, you're gonna listen to it six times after that anyway, and aside you can go listen to whatever the music is that you're seeing promoted. However,
1: or you're hearing people promote their music like, Oh, a new albums coming. New album is coming like on social media, like the artists themselves and hyping themselves up long before you even get anything. But I think now we in 2019 have adjusted to be like, but not for their you debut, have to follow
0: through, not, not for, for their, their debut. debut. Because you can you can access that artist's previous catalog and you can listen to them or whatever. That's For an artist debut, it's unheard of to to be promoted all over the place but not be able to access their product and their and the music that. they're And make. just setting up so much hype with with nothing to go on. And this is a very important part of this story because people... Because he did become a... He became a household name before anybody listened to a second of his music.
1: It's so astonishing to me. It's... I
0: cannot wrap my brain around it. I can't either, really. I mean, this is where, you know, my my position as a, as a girl in her late 20s, you know, comes into play because I I, I can't fathom a world like this where where this person could be, you know, all over the place, and in interviews that I, that I read and watched, people could not stress enough that Joe Bryant had become this name, this huge name, before anybody had heard a second of his music.
1: I just can't imagine people, like, not questioning it. Not questioning it. I think, like, is, are is that a thing? Like, now we're so jaded, and now we have such, like, high bullshit radars that we're like, uh-uh. See, I think about that all the time. Like, when, if I were alive yeah. back then, would I have been like, this is full of shit. I mean, and it's <sighs> or would I have played into it? It's
0: it's hard because I think I actually think about that question a lot. You know, when in terms of being a person who looks at you know old promos and old music and old old things like that when researching this show, it's so it, it's so funny to see how how earnest and upfront things were um, back in the day, and I wonder and i think all the time how marketing like that could not work now because we we expect so much and we expect so much authenticity there's a level i think today of of moving away from glamour and from things that are unattainably beautiful whereas i think back in the day it was it was much more fashionable to aspire to some yeah. kind of beauty and to want to be more than you are, whereas now because of economics and other circumstances that have informed our society it's we want authenticity and we want to know we want to see all the scenes we want to see all the cogs in the wheel, and we want to know that what we're getting is is completely straightforward and every and you know something that we can actually have nothing that's too far away from what we are.
1: And I think I I don't know, do you know I, what I mean yeah I do and I almost want to say this might be like way too like okay Carrie that's a reach but I I kind of want to say that that's because there's been a complete breakdown of the American dream and back then the American dream was so much alive that everything aspirational didn't feel it was aspirational but not unattainable you thought like yes, I could be a rock star someday. And now we're like, no, we know enough that like, we're not going to have this. So I want to see somebody yeah. who has it, but also like, does not Yeah. Well, that's
0: what, way. that's what I mean by economic factors that have, yeah.
1: that have torn
0: this whole thing down. I mean, it really, I mean, cause, I mean, this could be a whole other podcast, but if you look at, if you look at stuff that happened before the bursting of the housing bubble, you look at you look at marketing and you look at media before the bursting of the housing bubble, and it was much more glittery and it was much bigger and louder and colorful. And if you look at everything that came after, you've got normcore and minimalism, and you know that extends Boardcore. to clothing yeah. and and homewares and you know, color color schemes and color palettes and everything that you see from marketing to media to things we buy to things we listen to to things, you know, ways we talk to each other. I mean, it's really it's really informed everything, And but that's a really succinct way to put it is, you know, the dismantling of the American dream because we've changed what we want,
1: I think, or at least to our expectations of what we can get. Changed what we want or, like, or or known what we can settle for. like, we know what we can settle for, I think. We have more realistic out views of what, yeah, what we want yeah. and how money, we can yeah. get it.
0: Yeah. Cause money, money really does move everything. Um, including, including culture.
1: But anyway, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to have that 2019 mindset and look back at this huge media beast from 1973. It just 1973. feels so, just so feels relaxing. Dark. I was going to say it feels archaic, but...
0: No, it feels relaxing to think about a time when you could look at this huge billboard and be like, yes, I want that. I want to have a piece of that in my own life, and isn't it beautiful? And I'm going to, you know, move on with my life and my day thinking about this, and it's going to make me happy. And that's it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, that just feels that just,
0: relaxing to me. That's just all. Oh, it feels like such a. It feels I so also much think simpler think
1: like. <laughs> and simpler, and also, like, you have to also, I think, put it in the context of, like, the Vietnam War era, and everything was such, not unlike today, politically, everything was such, like, chaos that having something in pop culture that was bright and shiny and could take you out of that and give you, like, one thing that was a thing to be happy about and yeah. not jaded about. Again, like yeah, that must have been a great feeling. Like, oh, here's one thing that isn't terrible. Yeah, in this world. Yeah,
0: I mean, obviously, we have elements of that now too. But we it's, do, but, but it's, it's harder not, to come by, I think. And it's also not things like this. It's like, woman saves sixteen puppies from oil rig with superhuman strength never seen before, and then and the everybody next tweets day that to like, each other. Yeah, and but that's then, it.
1: but then the next day there's some story about well that woman actually had a bionic arm, so it wasn't that great of a story anyway. It's like Yeah. Or our, some... Again, it just goes back to I think our bullshit factors are on like red alert, yeah all, Like detectors are firing all the time, so we just can't really grasp onto that. Or, yeah. But but yeah. It's an
0: interesting phenomenon and I and I almost wanna have a sociologist on the show now to talk about it because now I want to keep talking about this. But we but don't we have know any sociologists. If you
1: are a sociologist or like in this. If you're a sociologist realm. and you ever want to
0: phone into our show and and discuss this topic with us before, um, before a future episode um, so we can air it as an addendum, that would be super fun. And that's an idea I just had right now. So if you want to play along with me and you're a sociologist
1: or even a psychologist, or like something in the ologist realm. That can speak about the human brain and human behavior is not. Uh, we don't. Uh, we don't want like a
0: meteorologist or a cardiologist.
1: <laughs> you know how to reach. As us. much as we
0: respect you, and RDMs hit us up. Let's talk about That's some of music. these related materials. Anywho, let's talk about the music. Let's talk about this album. So um, Jerry Brett and Joe Bryant hooked up. Everything seems swinging. Um, Joe Bryant, The album was recorded at Electric Lady. Amazingly, another one of our favorite hotspots. Um, it was also engineered and produced by Eddie Kramer, who was Jimi Hendrix's engineer. He'd actually worked with Led Zeppelin and the Beatles as well. Um, oh, and some people who had been in hair with Joe Briath came into the studio to lay down backing vocals, which I think is super cool of him inviting those people in to his recording studio. Um, including Vicki Sue Robinson, later known for her disco single, Turn the Beat Around. Yes, it is the same woman. And randomly enough, Richard Gear, like what? Yes, that Zaddy Richard Gere, he, is he is Zaddy? Richard Gere is so zaddy. Yes, he is. Yes,
1: yes you'll have he to is. pop it over to our glossary to know what we're I talking think he's about.
0: A, I think he's Zaddy. Um, um Richard Gere and shall we dance? Zaddy Zaddy I, AF. Will, I
1: will I will afford you that.
0: Zaddy AF, and also uh, very, very odd performance, uh, very odd appearance by Bobby Cannavale, side note, but um, Richard Gere, Zaddy AF.
1: So Richard Gere, Zaddy AF, yeah. was hanging around when Joe Barthes recorded this I album. mean, he wasn't Zaddy then, he was like little baby Richard Gere then, but... But Zaddy in the making, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I think once the album came out and once he was more um, media-facing and the hype kind of died down, I think what's really fascinating to see is how quickly the media turned and they kind of rejected him. I mean, um, his albums, his album, for the most part, was eviscerated. It was almost like rock only had room for three main glam stars, David Bowie, Mark Bullen, and Brian Ferry. And they had all proven themselves to have paid their dues and be serious musicians.
0: And I think it also speaks to the fact that by the time the album came out, everybody was so sick of hearing about Joe Briath that as soon as they heard the music, they were like, this isn't anything that I'm not getting from Mark Boland and David Bowie. And you know the New York Dolls and whatever. So, (laughs) why do I need this now? I'm now a. You've annoyed me. B. You've given me something that, upon first listen, sounds so much like everything else. Why do I need this too? So, if you're annoyed, and you're you're a a DJ or a critic, you're only too happy to write a mean your mean review because they're fun to write. Yeah, they're fun to write.
1: But I think to write. But I think also, especially something that went into that in the writing of the mean reviews was it was in journalism music journalism especially back then I mean it hasn't changed that much but back then it was aggressively a boys club and the reviews were filled with so much like homophobia and it it just was like it didn't surprise me in a way that they kind of pulled that in as a way of rejecting him and writing him off as like an American Bowie knockoff or like a yeah. wannabe. Um, it was like the, they only had room for, they had room for three glam rock stars, but they only really had room for one who is genderqueer, like aggressively genderqueer, mm. which was Bowie. And so they're like, if you're going to mm. just copy that, I have no, time or patience for it. And I'm going to be mean to you.
0: And I think it's also, I mean, if you listen to Joe Bright's music, I think it's also very obvious. Like, I mean, it must've been obvious to them at the time that this is actually a homosexual man who does not give a shit about your gender politics, making his own music the way he wants to make it. And it is truly pure and beautiful. I mean, this is a cinnamon roll album. This is exactly this is music exactly the way this man wants to make it. and there's 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 nothing mucking it up. There's no politics, there's no he's not being performative. This is just who he is. Um, and he lays it all out on the table. And because it is so honest and true, there's no way. There's no way that you can't hear it. You can absolutely hear it 100% in the music. Um, whereas David Bowie, I think it was a lot more obvious that he was playing a character because he rounded out the parameters of all of his characters so perfectly and down to the last detail that you knew that this is a persona that he was putting on and he was going to move on to the next one. So it made him more easily digestible, mm-hmm. I think, to a lot to the to the mainstream rock.
1: Um, consumer, and critic, um, whereas you, and it was you also like it was from the so truth. visual. It was so visual. It wasn't like uh-huh. if you listened to it musically and you hadn't really seen him. If you were for some reason like living under a rock and you only had a radio and you didn't know what he looked like and you didn't know any of that, you would maybe have been like, "Oh, this is accessible." You might not have thought like of him the the image of Bowie as this gender queer flamboyant yeah. figure, It's it doesn't come across in his music as much as no, it does it in Joe Briath.
0: No, it doesn't. It's I mean, he doesn't true. use,
1: like, he. I, I mean, if I'm wrong, tell me, but I don't think he ever uses, like, male pronouns or or anything, like... But also, David
0: Bowie's not singing about wanting to be a movie queen and yeah, like wanting to wear exactly. and wearing pearls and you know all this stuff like things that are just very. It's real. not
1: explicitly blatant. Like. No,
0: and just also like things in the music and and things he does with his voice and you know effects that he doesn't put on. Um, I mean, you can't you can't hide from from the truth, and this album is very naked and vulnerable in that way, um, and it's impossible to hide from the truth of who he is when you listen to his music. Um, yeah, it's it's just very apparent and um, and you know, contrasting what you know, Mark Bowen was doing with T Rex and what David Bowie was doing, and also you know what the New York Dolls were doing. I mean, that was all just very flamboyant play, but the, you know what they're the what they're the singing day. is very masculine. Yeah. And it's very sexy, and you like want to get next to them. But you know, Joe is is somebody is is. I don't know. There's there's a softness to it, even with the stuff that rocks harder. Um, so, yeah. so anyway, so let's, let's give it. you a taste of what we're actually talking about. Um, let's talk about Jobriath's Jobriath.
1: first track is called Take Me, I'm Yours. Joe Bryath was a very visual artist. He envisioned
0: worlds and aesthetics for himself and all the various Joe that he was over the years, and this song is such a perfect representation of that to me because it's so cinematic. I love the choice of this for the album opener because it is one of those songs that just sounds like a velvet curtain is being pulled back and you're being welcomed into this world. This entire opening section before it gets to the lyric is so cinematic that every time I hear it, I can bear with me, I see the opening of a backstage drama in my head and the camera is panning to the various characters as the song plays in the background. Um, like there's there's no warm up with this song it just plunks you in the middle of this party that's already going on and then when the lyric does start the very first thing that joe bryath sings is i do anything for you or to you and you know right away that this isn't going to be a typical song of love and devotion as the title suggests
1: Right. I mean I love I love songs that evoke that kind of mental image for you and that mental scene that's the best. And oh, I really totally I really like the way you phrase that because it is very much like we have been here, you just haven't been paying attention, but now you are. So come on, let's not waste any time, let's get right into it. It just does not pull any punches with opening the album and just, you know, hitting the ground running, which is one of my favorite Types of ways to open an album where you're just like, "We're not warming up here. We're going. Come yeah, on!" It's it's so cool. The, the get in was... loser. We're going album. Ming. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Um, so then as the
0: song continues Joe Bryant slinks his way around the verse lyrics singing words like make me cry out and die out and I'm a slave to your perversity with the same kind of winking sly bite that Joel Grey's MC delivers his songs with in Cabaret Um, and I'm going to say Cabaret the film specifically because that came out the year before this album came out and it would have been an easy comparison to make at the
1: time um, and a very natural one to my mind this song just oozes Sticky Fingers Stone sex to me. I hear so much Mick Jagger mimicry here. While Rolling Stone's original review of the album, when it was released, totally dragged him on this, they called it uncannily reminiscent, I don't hear it that much, the outright mimicry. I hear it kind of a little bit, and I hear the influence, but then that influence is exaggerated. And what's interesting looking back is that on this song in particular... I hear Joe Bryath mimicking early 70s Jagger, but then I hear late 70s Jagger, like much later, amping up the sex and the glam on some girls. And it sounds like he's the one pulling influence from Joe Bryath or from glam rock. And it's kind of like a circle of influence. I love that. I love that super interesting
0: i love that i love that you made that comparison because then we we talked about that on on when we were talking about some girls about how it got influences like from glam and from disco Disco, and how it was much more flamboyant and it and it went to it went to places that they hadn't gone before as a band
1: which is yeah it's really interesting to kind of see like i said the circle of influence the circle of influence it moves us all immediately
0: joe Bryant's sense of self is apparent with this song even though it's very theatrical there's a wholeness to it like i was saying before it doesn't feel like an act like flamboyance for flamboyance sake it is exactly what it presents itself to be like a romp through homosexual snm in general it's the dance between showmanship and honest vulnerability that is so fascinating about joe Bryant. exactly yeah it's, yeah, it's interesting. Those who knew him say that he never talked about men he was with or partners. Everyone knew Joe Bright was gay, but he never spoke about it or was specific about it. He just was who he was and lived how he lived without ever feeling the need to name it or label it. The only place where anyone could get a window into who he was was in his music.
1: I mean, I have to wonder, like, how much of it was that he didn't feel the need to and how much of it was... The era back then and being like, I don't feel the need to, but also I shouldn't because it's just opening me up for scrutiny or it's, there's so much closed mindedness that it's safer to not talk about it. It's safer to be like, don't ask, don't tell in a way. Yeah. Which is interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think he could have been a lot
0: riskier with the, with pushing those boundaries, considering how many artists at the time were towing that line just for art's sake I think he, I think he could have gone a little further if he'd wanted to, but I also just think, but he was a very private person anyway. He didn't do interviews. He didn't, it wasn't like, you know, he was just talking about his life like anybody else was. He just didn't talk to people.
1: Yeah. And because, yeah, it's like what you said, our other artists were, were pushing it for art's sake. But I think that's one of the reasons again, why I'm like, was he not talking about it because it was safer? And then, like, it ties back to because it wasn't for art's sake for him. It was, I mean, in a little bit yeah. it was, but it was very personal for him. And yeah. it was and I think his that's... life. So, like, how much does he want to push it for creativity, but how much does he want to pull back for just personal safety and personal privacy, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I
0: think that's a lot of the reason why he just wasn't very public in the first place, because it's kind of all or nothing. It's like, this is who I am. Take it all. Take it all or i'm just going to you know go live my life and keep a low profile yeah which was i which was clearly his decision
1: So the next song is Be Still. So I have to say I think this song is really cheesy. But it's cheesy in a way that I would still groove to. It's like a guilty pleasure song, I think. I mean, I wouldn't change it. I think it's really melodramatic, and I think it's really theatrical. And And I know that theatrics are part of this thing. I can appreciate that and also recognize that it's not as a listener, my personal musical preference. Um, the chorus, I think, is overly heightened, almost to a point where it's like, I can see sort of how maybe 80s power ballads were influenced by this sort of theatrical glam rock. But I do like how that then is contrasted with such soft verses. I like that texture to the song. But yeah, I think it's it's interesting to know that I appreciate this and like how you digest music where you're like, this isn't what I would normally listen to, but I, I understand the weight of it and like I'm just going to be over here listening to something else, at least when it comes to this song.
0: I totally, I buy that. I do. Cause I mean, there is something that is very dated about it, but I think, I think it's kind of dated in a really beautiful way. Um, And also, this wasn't the first arrangement of this song. The original version of this song was completed while he was still in hair. That makes sense to me. And it had a much folkier sound to it, rather than the airiness that is so indicative of a glam rock ballet. Like, in a glam rock ballet, there's a lot of space. There'll be a lot of space, and there'll be, you know, like a twinkling piano part, and, you know, then, you know, the guitar might come in a little, you know, with some effects and whatever, but it's generally going to be very airy. Um, And I I also think that with this arrangement, it sounds a lot like it could have been written by Andrew Lloyd Webber for Jesus Christ Superstar, which is another early 70s musical. Um, The original production of Jesus Christ Superstar happened in 1970, and the film version came out in 1973. And it goes to show how attuned Andrew Lloyd Webber was or how much he immersed himself during composition of the show in what rock was doing at the time and where it was going. Uh, because there are songs that I could point to on Bowie, T-Rex, New York Dolls, et cetera, albums from this time period as well that
1: mesh rock with them
0: with theatrical melodicism. And I think,
1: yeah, that makes total sense. And maybe that's why I don't like it, or at least I don't prefer it, because it's, I guess I just, I tend to gravitate mostly to things that are a little bit more muted and not like, theatrical like that I mean I have bits and pieces and it's always like I it's like there's a time and place for like when I listen to that kind of music but
0: no that reaction was was toward you implying that you don't like Jesus Christ Superstar I don't like Jesus Christ Superstar
1: (gasps) I'm sorry Jesus Christ Superstar is
0: so beautiful and that score is so intricate and perfect I love it so much okay dude Dude. I just, like, don't really care for Andrew Lloyd Webber. I don't either. I don't either. I only like 70s Andrew Lloyd Webber. 80s Andrew Lloyd Webber is so not my cup of tea at all. But, like, Evita is so good. Superstar. Superstar is honestly one of my favorite scores ever. Dude, they're, okay. Pro tip. The 1992 Australia cast recording.
1: (laughs) I'm (laughs) telling you. (laughs) Don't laugh at me. That is the. (laughs) nerdiest thing you have ever said on this podcast the 1992 australia
0: cast recording of jesus christ superstar is if you don't like jesus christ superstar i recommend listening to this version because it's like the it's like it's like the 80s rock version of jesus christ superstar the whole the, the simon simon zelotti's is the best number ever on this recording it just it sounds like a party it sounds like a party in a gay club in the 90s it's just oh just listen to it it's so good i totally recommend it we're gonna put it on the on the playlist for this episode the simon from the 1992 australia cast recording because it's so amazing and honestly it kind of sounds like something joe bryth would have done too not gonna lie it's it's all full circle it's all coming together but i'm not kidding that recording's amazing Anywho, um, (laughs) tangent over. This is another theme that I like that runs through pretty much of all of Joe Bryant's first album, his use of theatrical background in his compositions. Uh, To be sure, theatrics and quote star quality and glitter and glamour were obviously requisite aspects of glam rock, but specifically in Joe Bryant's music and even more so on songs that we'll get into in a little bit, his authentic adoration of all things female and his fascination with female characters with elegance with beauty with all of these things that he'd adored since he was a little boy came out in his melodies and his lyrics Joe Bryant loved creating personas he did so throughout his lifetime so that even when he was being his most naked vul- and naked and vulnerable lyrically even his quiet piano melodies were put through this theatrical filter he'll give you his truth but he's going to deliver it to you in this beautiful package he wanted his life to be beautiful so that even though he never hid from his truth and, you know, like I was saying before, you know, the truth of who he is can easily be heard through this, through these filters of beauty and, and through his music, um, he would present it in the way that pleased him, uh, because the music was his own creation after all.
1: I think that something that you just brought up is his, very, upfront, wanting to be famous, and his obsession with, like, glitter and glamour, I think that's why I'm, like, uncomfortable with some of the music, because I do applaud him for being unvarnished and upfront about wanting to be a star and wanting all of that, um, because it's not an easy thing to do, at least back then. It's just, I don't know, aggressive declaration of wanting fame and the delivery of it, like, it makes me kind of look at, like, how much of your music is... Because you love music and how much of it is because the music is the vehicle for fame. And again, that's 2019 me speaking. Like, through all of this jaded sort of, like, digestion of media. Totally. growing up in a reality TV world and all of that, like totally and and, it's discussed a lot now
0: yeah Um, the only reason why that doesn't bother me with Joe Bryath is because he loved music from such a young age and was already when he was a teenager writing music and he was a classical pianist and he would like sit at the piano and compose these complex intricate pieces for piano when he was a child like and and you know not doing it for anybody but himself. He just did it because it felt good to create music. Um, so I think the, the wanting to be famous thing came, came later, but the love for music and, and the wanting to, to give of his talent is actually authentic and real.
1: See, I do. uh, Yeah, I get that. I get that. And I, I think of course, like seeking fame is psychologically often tied to experiences of neglect or being deprived of attention as a child or feelings of being insignificant and kind of wanting to fill that hole in you and like get that admiration and love from strangers to feel complete. And I think it's interesting because he he probably had sort of similar feelings like that. And it it comes to me as like I think his music is authentic to a point, but then it reaches that point where he does see it. It's like when you know you can marry two things that you love. Fame and music and then it's like but one has to be exaggerated to get the other outcome I guess if that makes sense I don't know it just again this is me being really jaded it makes me sort of step back and look at his music and take it with a grain of salt because it's like is this very dramatic music flamboyant music exaggerated music is that the authentic you or is that the heightened version that you are performing to gain attention and admiration, not like above success, like excess of, a, yeah. of it. Because I, it's just, it's really hard to tell, and I think it's hard to tell because again, like we only have so much to work with.
0: There when are it definitely comes to him
1: like. There are definitely artists
0: like that, but I think with him, there's enough evidence of him loving music and him creating music all throughout his life. And wanting it to be beautiful and wanting a life that was more beautiful than what he was given that I,
1: I don't, I am not saying there's anything anything wrong with wanting to create something beautiful and loving music. I don't think you are. No, it's, I think it's at what point did it, at what point is it that he's not creating something to be beautiful and he wants it to be beautiful, but he's. He's doing it because it's that, but then it goes on to the next level of it's beautiful, but also if I can make it a little bit more, if I add like 10 times of this or something, then it becomes beautiful, but also heightened and it gets me fame. That's, it's just, I don't know. I look at it with more of a a jaded perspective, which is kind of sad for me, but.
0: I just also, like enough time has gone by where, and also he's been dead for almost 40 years. So I don't enough, enough time has gone by where I don't necessarily think that 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 matters. I think what's, what's stayed has been the truth of the fact that the music actually is good. Um, and that it came from a real place. Um, you know, obviously there's like a lot of hype and narcissism involved in, you know, being somebody who, you know, is at this level of fame, but you know,
1: The next song is called World Without End, and okay, that opening drum fill, like the entire opening groove, bass, guitar, the yeah, 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 um, I dig it, it's just, it's a cool song, oh, the lyrics are cool, it's just, it's a groove, it's, it's a, a cool.
0: it's a vibe, it's just so good, and that bass line is my everything, I want to play it all the time, it is so good Um, but yeah yeah these lyrics I'm sure you and I could do a whole mini episode of side conversations that we could have related to these lyrics because essentially the song is a comment on how society is cyclical humans hurt each other in the same way that they always have clothes titles trappings etc will change with time but human nature stays the same Joe Bryant sings about how closed-minded comfort has always been and will always be a prime source of fear and Um, fear-mongering. exemplified in the lyrics, warnings and sermons live in tracked houses and shop at supermarkets in their Sears and Roebuck blouses, and how those who desire creativity and understanding will always revolt against that. He even speaks about how the news and the violence of it became increasingly unavoidable around this time with violent images being broadcast into family living rooms in increasing numbers as the Vietnam war raged on. It totally makes sense that Joe Briath would comment on that here as the political and social upheaval of the 1960s changed how news was reported and consumed in the U S but of course it is also interesting to us now because Any comment on media of that time serves as a time capsule of the beginning of the avalanche that led to what we've got now with the constant pervasiveness of social media. That, too, is a part of the cycle of The World Without End. This is essentially a hippie protest song arranged as a hard-driving glam rocker.
1: For sure. And, yeah, I think it is fascinating to see how applicable it is today. Um, Like you said, it's just now we have more things feeding into this cycle. Um, And the opening verse says it all. We've all been here before. Yeah. So many aspects of this song lyrically still apply today. I mean, it's just asking for somebody to cover it, um, really. But it also... It's cool because, yeah, it fits in today, but it fits in with the time and with what his peers were doing because several glam rock stars were dispensing messages of the kind of revolutionary ideology that they experienced coming of age in the 60s, but, like you said, sort of filtered through their glam aesthetic. You have T-Rex's Children of the Revolution. Um, I also think of Mott Hoople's All the Young Dudes. Bowie's Changes kind of incorporates some of that, and it's really cool to see how the protest song evolves into morphs more along with like, the maturation of these artists yes yeah totally, exactly. cool. And it kind totally of, cool it also kind of I think takes on it's like a, it's a protest song in disguise like if you listen to protest songs of the 60s it's it's totally obvious what their agenda is and like that's what people wanted to hear though and now it's kind of like
0: and now it's like oh well we're still going to say the same thing because we still feel the same way because we still have the same beliefs but we're going to package it in a way that is more digestible to you now because trends change
1: yeah yeah you cry bring the
0: sky down the next song is called space Clown.
1: i love how much of this album has space themes it's endearingly dated and cliche in a way i mean i don't blame critics based off of this track for calling him a sort of cheap american bowie ripoff because this album came out a year after ziggy stardust and the spiders from mars this is like when you look at the generic names for well-known brand name things, it's like they try to get close, but it ends up being funny. It's like buying fruity balls instead of tricks, something like that. It's just this song sort of feels like, to me, when I listen to it, an uninspired generic riff on Starman, if I'm being honest.
0: I mean, this song and his live performances, I know, sort of was more of like a performance-arty thing, and this, the performances of this would get really out there. Um, but when I listen to this song on the album, I do tend to skip it because it it is a little slower and at this point in the album I want to keep going on to other things um yeah, to me, like it's a lovely composition, but it does just it does feel like filler. I mean I hate saying that because I mean the music on here is I think is it's all really good and it's all quality stuff and it all holds up today um. But there isn't um, this just this just isn't it's not my favorite <laughs> essentially.
1: The next song is Earthling. I mean, basically, what I just said for the previous song kind of applies to this song a little bit. It's just, it's an obvious coupling.
0: Totally, but this song—I don't know. This song just like gets to me more. Like I, I can, I can get down with it a lot more. There's something about it that I just like. Um, this is where Joe Bria gets really funky on the album. I mean, that bassline is straight up P-funk realness. Totally. Like, I mean, a million percent. I mean, that's why I like this song better than the other one. Same, same, Z's. Also, good time to point out that space themes were not exclusively being explored by the glam rockers in the 70s. Parliament has that album called Mothership Connection where they have that whole getting funky in outer space motif going. It came out a couple years after this. It actually came out in 1975, but the space thing was deaf a vibe that was spreading around the genres.
1: Oh, for sure. And it's, it's really bizarre, but also cool and silly to look back at this time period and see how much space was this campy concept um, space and the Future that just permeated all of pop culture, not just music, because yeah. in the sixties and seventies you have you have Bowie in Parliament and you have um, Joe Bryath, but you also have on TV like Lost in Space and the movies, you have like Barbarella and it's so The Jetsons. The Jetsons. You have Duh. this all the all of this pop culture that's so reflective of the time and like being surrounded by the space race and being totally caught up in that mode of thinking like about the future in this abstract way yeah um but it's interesting and the moon landing in 69 it's just
0: like interesting to see like how much reach and how much sustain that event had on pop culture because like years later you're still seeing space motifs happening
1: yeah and it's just interesting to see how each person or each thing sort of digests that and puts it out there yeah And also
0: talking about influences, um, I'll go more into Joe Bryant's 1920s influences when we talk about the next song, but it's fun to note here that these lyrics are super witty and playful. For example, been 7,000 years since I could walk that way. Come on, show me how to play. Um, And he's having a lot of fun making the rhymes suggestive and dirty. And this is something that Cole Porter used to do in his lyrics as well. And Cole Porter's influence can be heard throughout this album and throughout Joe Bryant's career. Uh, But more on that in a minute. All my very own, that bright and shining star, I've worshipped from afar, came down to earth to be with me
1: tonight. Next is Movie
0: Queen. So here again is another example of Joe Briath's idealization and adoration of feminine beauty. Of course, it ties into the glam rock themes of glitter and drama, but Joe jo- draws on his own specific influences here as well. He name checks Busby Berkeley, who was known for his choreography of elaborate musical numbers in the 20s and 30s, and Florin Ziegfeld, who was the most famous producer and impresario of turn-of-the-century Broadway. Both men had their own ideas of perfect beauty and they created shows and aesthetics with like these mind-blowingly perfect details, which were even more impressive considering the technological limitations of their time periods. I mean, we're talking like the perfect the perfection and, and precision of the pyramids at Giza in the in a time when there were absolutely no there's no technological reason why these things should be so perfect. I mean the same kind of thing goes for the 1920s. And these musical numbers they were so precise it was insane
1: i like that he chooses to pay tribute to these creators and this old hollywood sort of glitter and stardom in their style of that time it's like it's always interesting when you hear people name drop their influences and songs and like oh i can kind of see where you're going with that but it's it's another to see them do it in their style um yeah yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like genius of love. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that. honestly what that made me think of when you said that just now.
1: Um, there's that. Yeah, that's a good example. Uh, check out our liner notes. We'll link you to that episode and that entire discussion. Planning. But... <laughs> James. wrong! Anyway, <laughs> we are getting too silly. Check it out. We're getting too silly. <laughs> we have to talk about the music. So silly. This is really, it's really cool though because this, in this specific album, using their style is such a departure from everything else and all of the harder rocking songs that we've heard up until now. Now you have this sparse piano-driven ragtime show tune, um... It's just a cool break, and I can, I don't know, I can see it being, like, performance art and being performed on stage in some sort of, like, vaudeville show from that era.
0: Or vaudeville show now. Like, pro tip, drag queens, hit this song up. No one else is using it in their show, I guarantee, and you can drag it up. (laughs) Tip your queens. And pro tip. The melodic style of this song references the 1920s, which is definitely characteristic of Joe Bryant and foreshadows his later career. After his star fell and the Jerry Brant machine was done steamrolling over his career, Joe Bryant created yet another new persona called Cole Berlin, and he became a very well-known and popular pianist at cabarets around New York City. He had always known and had a reverence for popular songs from the 20s and 30s, and so this new persona was in homage to Cole Porter and Irving Berlin. So it makes sense that when he was writing songs that would go on his first album, he used motifs and progressions found in songs from this time period. Movie Queen legit sounds like an Irving Berlin song, and that's another thing that sets Joe Briath apart from other glitter glamours. Once again, Joe Bryant's artistry and creations were inspired by things that he'd had a deep knowledge, fascination, and curiosity of and with since he was a boy. Yes, of course, it's easy to compare his personas to those of Bowie's who did that too, but Bowie's eras and aesthetics were a lot more distinct. You could see him wanting to change based on his changing tastes which is awesome I love that about Bowie do not get me wrong I love David Bowie but Joe Bryant's case was different because his personas were all more closely related there were no surprises like how you can see the roots of Cole Berlin in this iteration of Joe Bryant Joe Bryant just wanted his personas to be all beauty and no reality it's why he put Bruce Campbell to bed years before this
1: Clara and open toes are what I am I I'm a maid. Next is I'm a man so
0: this is the song that led me to finding out more about Gibriad It's the first song of his that I heard and honestly it's still my favorite because it is just so piercingly and gorgeously transparent the lyrics are just so plain spoken. There's nothing to hide behind because Joe Briath is just telling it like it is. He's telling us about how he walks through life just as fact, no editorializing. Those lyrics are backed by a hard-driving rock melody, especially in the chorus that picks up steam until it climaxes at the words, so let me be what I am. That moment is so wholly thrilling that I have listened to it hundreds of times at this point, and I am still not sick of it. Don't think I ever will be. The music demands that you take it seriously. It demands that you listen. It doesn't ask, and the lyrics don't shy away from demanding.
1: Yeah, and this song, yeah, it's just it's a killer jam, and I love the way that the harpsichord weaves through it. Um, that's one of the things I picked up on, like the first time I listened to it. It just, I feel like we've talked about him so much for not having done an episode on him, but it immediately reminded me a lot of John Cale. Uh, just weaving a classical, almost medieval sounding instrument through a hard rock song. It's such an interesting clash of textures, but I think it makes sense for this song because it echoes his sentiments of being a man, but a fragile and a gentle one. Uh, Because the chorus is aggressive and sneering, it's almost showboating in a hyper-masculine way. But he quickly backs off to show his tender side, and I, I think that's really beautiful. It's it's a yeah, way before time statement about toxic masculinity It's declaring that just because a man might be queer or might be feminine or might be soft in any sort of way, it doesn't mean that he still isn't a man. And it's wild to think that something this like on point came out in the early seventies before people really started to talk about sex and gender, which is a very, very current conversation that we are all having right now. Um, Or when there was such rampant homophobia, because it's, yeah, it's just a really courageous move, and I yeah I dig it I think it's really awesome I think it
0: is too and I also think that's a really interesting point to make um, that you that you just sort of that you just sort of brought up just now uh, because we are having these conversations about how gender is fluid and about how people can present themselves however they want to and they should be able to present themselves however they want to um, with with no conflict or, or, or problem from anybody else uh, because people should just be able to live their truth but I mean you look at musicians now and who's really doing the whole glam thing nobody's nobody does that anymore
1: there are no male artists that are doing that and yet to an extent there are like I mean we'll get into it in the um I have a lot more to say about it in our like influence section but I think there are like pop stars they're not like so much glam but there are pop stars being pretty out there male ones especially too I wouldn't say to the same extent maybe some people I just don't know about but it's interesting. They're young, that's why. They're super young. But the... I barely know anything about them. Oh, okay. Because I'm old.
0: But the um but the, the interesting counterpoint that, that I think you that, that you maybe think of is that, you know, that's maybe not so much happening now, but back at a time where people weren't talking about homosexuality so openly and then the gender conversation wasn't coming up, um, you know, in the seventies and eighties, you know, you had rock stars, like hard rocking rock stars who were these you know beautiful men who would come out in you know pearls and robes and hair dye and and all this stuff that you would associate with feminine beauty and doing totally androgynous things i mean you know glam rockers of the 70s hard rockers of the 80s this was all happening when the conversation about gender wasn't and i just think that's an interesting contrast that you know it wasn't really so much questioned then that you could be a desirable Man, a desirable straight man, and still come out in these very feminine things and make yourself up and wear lipstick and all of that, and still be desired and wanted. But you know, if you were to then come out as gay, it would suddenly be like no, 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 no. But whereas now, you know, you could do whatever you wanted and you can present however you want. But it's not. But people aren't presenting that way so much anymore.
1: You know what I, just I think, think it's is interesting. It, something you brought up is that like that.
0: This is an observation. No, just and something that about. you brought
1: up that was really interesting to me and something I don't think a lot of people talk about a lot is like you said, it's like they could be flamboyant and feminine, as, but they were still a man and they were still appreciated as men in a way. Exactly. I just think about how much the the ability to f- explore gender and flip gender and play with norms, that was such a male privilege. Like It was. There were not many women if any women in the 70s at least there were no women in the 70s at least to my knowledge doing this there are only a handful not even a handful like maybe two or three in the 80s like I most prominently think of Annie Lennox I was just gonna say Annie Lennox yeah that's Katie Lang Katie Lang but Katie Lang again is like how much is that that's like the 90s and that's again like people would people didn't view it so much as like Cause oh, she, she was she's being still experimental, feminine, but she was still feminine in her way. In her way, but I think people were a lot harsher and more were more like, "Oh, she's just like butch, yeah, and less like with, you know, with somebody like, like yeah. Annie Lennox." It's like, "Oh, it's an art statement, yeah." Like it was acceptable that men could play in our
0: sandbox, but we couldn't play in theirs. Yeah, which is just a weird—a weird thing. It's a weird because thing to think I about. mean, I didn't even think about that. It's just so—it's so accepted in culture that I, I didn't even think about it until just now.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, that's, it's something that I, I feel like I read something about that or just like somebody posted something that was just like one little thing. Like think about how many men were allowed to present as women. It's
0: just so funny because why is it more, why does it have more of an impact to see a man, you know, with dyed hair and lipstick and, you know, jewelry on than it is to see a woman, In a suit and short hair. Like, it's like, oh, okay, you can do that, but, like, I'll pat your head and, like, whatever little girl. But it's like, oh, a man puts on lipstick and it's, oh, my God, he's doing so much. He's breaking so many boundaries. Isn't it sexy?
1: I want him. I think it's it's because we build up masculinity so much. People build up, like, Western culture, at least, builds up masculinity as the be-all, end-all. And, like, the perfect way to be and to be a woman is kind of it's always going to be inferior and if a woman tries to be a man it's like no you're not allowed yeah or like oh isn't that cute power. oh my god look at this shiny thing over here it's you about know? power it's like yeah. how dare you try to have the power of a man but with a, if a man tries to be effeminate it's like Ooh. oh you're just oh it's heavy. almost like you're exploring your power by being able to do that yeah flexing on it
0: yeah this is something carrie taught me you guys it is a flex i'm did i use it right you did carrie taught me millennial lingo you guys i'm a millennial lingo who doesn't understand millennial lingo carrie has to teach me things well
1: We'll add flex to our yeah, handy-dandy glossary. Well, wait. Explain. Explain for our listeners what flexing is. A flex is when you're flexing on someone. Carrie,
0: <laughs> Carrie, no, flex- you cannot use a word from the dictionary. You cannot use the dictionary definition to define the word. A
1: flex is basically exactly that. It's like when you flex your muscles, you show off.
0: So it is a show off. It is a brag. It's you a be brag. Be on on
1: Yeah. So, yeah. I did it. And we're so proud of you. Thanks. Outside of my window The rain's
0: falling down It's falling so close It's chill
1: as near yet far Oh Next is Inside. I I don't know. I don't really care for this song. It's just, to me, it's like Elton John cosplay.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, I like this song, too. It's just, it's very quiet, and it's introspective. Um, It's melodramatic to me. it, 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 I think it toes. I think it, I think it, it toes, it's, I think it dips its toes in the water of that. Um, it's just, it's another lovely piano ballad that he, that he's got on here, um, I think this song was written pretty early on, um, from what I can tell. Um, the lyrics are again just poetic and lovely. Um, there's this there's a there's a set of lyrics that goes the ye- the little yellow raincoats running in the rain, beckon, how they beckon with their sweet refrain, their gentle laughter outside. Those fools don't know enough to come in out of the rain. Would you know they would if they could just remain inside, inside with someone like you? And I think that is just such a beautiful illustration. Um, it reminds me a lot of the poetry of Frank O'Hara, who is my favorite poet ever. Um, and interestingly, interestingly enough, uh, Frank O'Hara was a gay man. Um, so I think it's, I think it's interesting that they, um, that there's, there's a lot of similarities, um, in their prose and how they see the world and how they, um, how they interpret its beauty. Yeah. If you are into Frank O'Hara, um, I think you might know what I mean, uh, if you compare their prose. Um, but yeah, this song, I think I just I love it so much for the poetry um, But other than that, the music Is just kind of a nice Background for it, but the, the poetry is the Standout here Who was that Sneaking
1: upstairs? Taking A hairpin From her hand The vision of the light next is morning starship again with the space motif it's
0: everywhere coming to a podcast episode near you
1: songs about space hashtag space jam
0: will <laughs> never be cool So this is a perfectly serviceable glam ballad. There's lots of cosmic imagery with a narrative about a woman who the singer finds beguiling, judging by the way he sings about the golden details of her beauty, who wants to be led into his morning starship, only to leave later, leaving the singer bereft and confused.
1: It's interesting to me that he sings about a woman. Well, I mean,
0: gender is fluid. You can write about whoever.
1: Yeah, but if he was openly and flamboyantly, like but he's Yay. not going to put
0: that on an album that's to be marketed to the greater public.
1: No, again, which is why I think it's interesting that he he put it he pushed so far but like The Final Frontier is using the same pronouns in a song. I mean,
0: it's again, you know, it's the same thing Cole Porter did. Like, if you listen to his music, he was very, very sexual and very, you know, flamboyant in what he wrote. And that was in the 1920s. But, I mean, he, I mean, and it was kind of like the worst kept secret in New York that he was, you know, a, you know, that he was gay. But, you know, at the same time, he still had to front like he wasn't. But anyway, there's a lot of great imagery used in this song. Um... That, is used, that tells a lot by showing, for instance, the crystal glint of the turning glass, the creaking sound of the rusted latch, as she slowly opened the door. The darkness told me mo- nothing more, except, except that she was near my morning starship. You get the sense that the singer is a little reluctant to let this woman in at first because of the creaking and the rusted adjectives used. Going back to what you were saying, this is all speculation on my part, but I don't think that Joe Bryath would just arbitrarily write a romantic song about a woman just for the sake of writing one, Um, and there isn't any information that I was able to find on the composition of this song that can support or deny that. Um, I also think it's interesting that this song isn't necessarily romantic, so there's nothing about the lyrics that puts it undoubtedly in that category. So I'll go so far as to speculate that much of this song is in reference to his mother, who he was very close to throughout his childhood, but ultimately didn't recognize the full scope of his talents or his abilities.
1: I mean, that makes sense. Now that you put that theory out there, I can, yeah. I can get behind that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you way. just like really have to look at the lyrics. But yeah, that, I, think, I think they're vague enough to be interpreted however you'd want. It just doesn't necessarily have to be in a romantic way.
1: The next song is Rock of Ages.
0: This song is a bop and a half and honestly one of my favorites on the album. You and I both know how much of what would become punk a few years after this came out of glam rock, and this song is a perfect example of that. The music and lyrics of Rock of Ages both reference the melodies and the progressions of OG rock songs from the 50s by the likes of Chuck Berry and Bill Haley and Little Richard. Um, The latter two are also name-checked in this song. Um, The lyrics take you through growing up alongside rock and roll listening to Little Richard, etc. in the 50s and the British Invasion bands in the 60s, hence the title Rock of Ages. So many of the New York punk bands would employ this same musical referencing as well, most notably the Ramones and Blondie, where they used progressions that were common in the 50s and 60s and sped them up and lo-fied them out.
1: Yeah, I definitely see the comparison that you make to New York City punk and that growing movement and how it's interesting that these two genres that seem different weren't that different at all because mm. they were both influenced by the same thing. And the way that they reworked it was just just different. It's like it's like looking at a family tree, yeah. And you see one kind of split off in one direction from the same parent or whatever. It's like two children of the same parent. Yeah, they're, just, they're different, but they're related. Yeah, um, musical
0: family trees are really really fun yeah. to, to listen for and take a look at.
1: They play out all the tears. I'm not allowed to
0: cry. But I have to cry
1: to stay alive, to stay alive.
0: The last song on the album is called Blow Away.
1: And this song, to me, it's just so long. <laughs> It's. It feels so stretched out, just like that. It feels stretched out, it feels repetitive and tired that halfway through I lose patience, which is honestly a shame because I feel like you wouldn't want to end the album on a song that people, at least me, don't even want to finish because, yeah, it leaves me little incentive to want to flip over to the beginning and listen again. I'm like... Bye. Yeah, I mean, it does does
0: kind of take its time to end, and I'm not in love with the choice to close the album with this either, but I do enjoy the theatrical quality of it. It's this sweeping, dramatic ballad. I mean... I picture pink and purple smoke effects on stage with this one, Um, but it wants you to get wrapped up in the mood it's creating, which, cool, I dig, but my one issue with that is that the lyrics are so great, and I think it's easy to miss them because of how big the production gets immediately. There are these synthy strings that start playing in the first verse, and they distract from the pathos of what Joe Bright is singing about. I mean, lyrics are great stuff. There's stuff like, oh, how the strings retch and how the horns moan. They play out all the tears I'm not allowed to cry, but I have to cry To stay alive to stay alive and all the pretty boys lay in the passage of every song that it's etched, that's etched its way out from my bleeding heart but i have to bleed to be freed to be freed that just says so much about his heart and his experience and i do wish the production was simpler to showcase this but that's it that's that's Joe Bryant's self-titled album from 1973 after Joe Bryant's fame kind of immediately petered out Um, and he lost his record deal. Um, He did end up, as I mentioned, um, becoming a rather well-known and and famous around New York City um, cabaret artist and pianist um, by the name of Cole Berlin. He went by some other names as well, Um, but he ended up living out his last days, fun fact, in the pyramid room on top of the Chelsea hotel, on top of the Chelsea hotel, there is a pyramid apartment. There's a pyramid on top of the roof and inside of it is an apartment. Um, and that is where he lived at the end of his life. Um, he died of AIDS in the early eighties, um, as one of, one of the early casualties of the disease, uh, tragically enough. So yeah, so it's just interesting to see like how this bright light just burned out. He just you know, went quietly away and then was gone. Um but while he was here he did give us this incredibly beautiful music that I do think still holds up today as as quality glam rock and just quality music all around. Um and there's just really beautiful poetry from him and um and and Joe Bryant and people like him I think paved paved the way a lot for for other queer artists and um artists, you know, who have sort of a more flamboyant theatric, uh theatrical vision in general. Um artists such as Scissor Sisters, Foxygen is one that I love. Um, you know, from the 80s, 90s, Erasure, um, I think or like that. Um Aquaville River is another one. Um they actually wrote a song um that references Joe Brieth. Paul Cherry is another person I'm listening to right now who reminds me a heck of a lot of Joe Briath. Just people like that with that more theatrical, synth-y, like offbeat kind of poetry vibe. Um, even Susie Sue cited. I read. I read somewhere that Sus- that Susie Sue cited him as an influence as well. So, um, yeah, just sort of keeping that that theatrical flame going and and finding new ways to. To deliver your music, I think, is, is very much where you can find your Bryant's influence.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I see definitely a lot of his influence in the theatricality of Lady Gaga. Um, that comes to mind immediately because she's kind of, like, right in the forefront of my mind um, and in the news much a lot. Very so. i agree with that. Obviously, yeah. awards season and a star is born. Uh, Frank Ocean is another one with, like, really exploring femininity is definitely somebody I think who kind of carries this trend forward. Um, But I think it's interesting that you really see a lot of his legacy play out in the most explicit way this past year, past few years, because at least in 2018, that was such a watershed year for openly and sometimes unapologetically flamboyantly queer artists, particularly in the pop space and particularly by really young artists that Mm -hmm. you and I aren't. Familiar with because they're more popular with Gen Z. To be honest, that somebody nicknamed 2018 20 gay teen because you've got Troye Sivan, Haley Kyoko, King Princess, Janelle Monet, um, Big Frida, Kim Petrus, who is trans even. Um, like there's there's a lot more. Big Frida's openly. been around for a while though. She ha- yeah he has. Fr- he. Yeah. Does he go by she? Or is, does he I'm not she? 100% sure. I'm not
0: sure. Whatever they.
1: their preferred pronoun, pronouns are. Whatever their are. preferred pronouns um, are. Big, yeah, Big Fried has been around He's a been while. He's been around in the New Orleans bouncing for exactly. a long time. Exactly, yeah. But I, again, like, it has a lot of visibility now being mm-hmm. sampled on tracks and featured on um, like Drake songs and stuff. But again, I think there's so much. There's just been a, an explosion a visibly out queer artist and it's really interesting to see how it took until now for that to be a big thing. Absolutely. And also interesting too how much the space is going back to what we were saying earlier. Now it's, there's more equality in the space where it's not just men being, f- um, being feminine. It is artists like Janelle Monae totally, and, um, and, and King Princess kind of exploring the duality of gender um yeah it's just all goes back to joe Bryant whether they know it or not whether
0: they know it or not you know they, and that's why i think it's that was why i think it's so important that we tell this story um because there were these artists out there who may not be celebrated and who may not be household names but they were very much out there doing the work that paved the way for you know the artists that that you know, the kids listen to now that we listen to now, um, who are making things happen now. I mean, Joe Briath really was ahead of his time with what he was doing musically. Um, and with his persona and with who he was as a person presenting to the world, um, you can go back and see the seeds of what, uh, these pop artists do now in what Joe Briath was doing then. Um, and I think that is a really beautiful thing to look at and appreciate and, Acknowledge, and if you are interested in the story of Joe Briath, um we've got links for you on our website. You can go and fall down the rabbit hole just like we did, and you know, look at interviews and um, and listen to the music. And there's this really great documentary on him that I watched. It's called Joe Breyth A.D., um, and it tells the story of Joe Briath in a really in a really lovely way and it talks with people who knew him who are related to him um and it it just provides a really really great, great glimpse probably the most in-depth and and accessible glimpse into his life that you can find on the internet um but there are also several um places where you can find his lyrics analyzed on the internet whatever but i definitely i definitely definitely recommend watching the documentary joe bryath ad if you are interested in learning more about Joe Briath and his music and we will obviously link to that in our show notes on our site um so yeah yeah
1: so that's our show yeah that's our show we are
0: Carly Jordan and Carrie Corgan. and thanks for listening if you want to get at us you can send us an email at 77musicclub at gmail.com you can also find us online at 77musicclub.com
1: and we have our whole episode archive there if you've missed anything or want to catch up Um, And our glossary, which we've talked about a lot. You can also find us on social
0: media, on Facebook, 77 Music Club, and also on Twitter, at 77 Music Club. We are the only thing that comes up when you search 77 Music Club, and we plan to keep it that way.
1: So like us, follow us, retweet us, share us. Give us that algo juice. Tell someone you know about
0: 77 Music Club. Tell them in person. Start a conversation. Look up from your phone and tell one person you know who loves music about 77 Music Club and see if they like it. Maybe they'll tell another person and maybe we can get a whole word of mouth thing going and get conversations started because that's what we want to do anyway.
1: And once again, if you liked all of the music that we talked about today or you want to listen to it and all of the other related songs that we talked about, you can find us on Spotify, 77 Music Club. We have playlists from all of our episodes broken down now by season because the master playlist just got too big. And... And, 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 how could we forget? If you're listening to us in iTunes, do us a fave. Hit us up in the iTunes store, in the podcast tab. Like us, review us, give us a rating. You can give us a one-star rating. We know you're still out there somewhere, One Star Reviewer. Probably not listening How to this. How are you doing,
0: One Star Reviewer? It's been a long time since we checked in with you, but we hope all's grand. We hope you're having a great 2019. We hope you've been curious and listened to us since you gave us that One Star Review. We hope someone changed your mind, but they probably didn't. I'm probably talking to dead air right now. This is a waste of time. But
1: what we're <laughs> You can give us any rating you like. Just give us a rating. We'll accept it. Just
0: give us a rating. You've already gotten this far, so you must really like this show if you're still <laughs> listening to this, if you're still listening to the housekeeping.
1: And um, so on that note... So thanks for being a friend I of the pod. Have to say thanks and goodbye.
0: Oh, shout out to The Radiator for being the third character on this
1: show. We'll see you guys next time.
0: Good night and good luck.
1: And have a good day. Yeah. <laughs>